It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 342 for May 12th, 2013. This week, a new version of Windows is in the works. Adobe's latest applications won't come in boxes. In short circuits, Sony reports a profit, and yes, this is news. A spammer in the slammer. A Senate bill proposes placing a spy watch on suspect nations. And Star Wars on your computer. Microsoft plans to release the public preview of Windows 8.1, codename Blue, in June. And the 8.1 update is expected to be generally available before the end of the year. I wonder if those who so desperately want the start button to return are eagerly awaiting the return of crank starters to today's automobiles. I mean, after all, getting used to turning the key instead of setting the spark, opening the choke, and hand cranking the engine is just so difficult to comprehend. Yeah, that snark was definitely intended. The preview version will be debuted at Microsoft's annual Build Developers Conference, but if you're running Windows 8 currently, Microsoft will apparently make the preview version available to you prior to the developer conference. So is the start button coming back? Strong rumors suggest that it is, and I welcome that, if for no reason other than it will remove a gigantic distraction. The start button is about as useful on Windows 8 machines, touchscreen or not, as certain glands are on a warthog. Eighteen months ago, I said that Microsoft was making what I thought was a technical mistake by removing the start button. Technically, though, that was the right decision. The mistake was a marketing error. People simply don't like change. And they like change even less if it appears that they are being forced to accept the change. Had the start button been available all along, the gigantic controversy wouldn't have erupted, probably. If Microsoft had permitted users of computers that don't have touchscreens to boot directly to the desktop, we wouldn't be arguing about how difficult it is to get to the desktop. Pressing the Windows key and D is apparently just too difficult a concept for some users. And these users ignore the fact that Windows 8 starts faster, shuts down faster, launches applications faster, provides better security, and provides literally hundreds of large and small improvements over Windows 7. All of those don't matter. A month or so ago, my wife's notebook computer died and she asked me to find her a new one. I'll have to have that new operating system, won't I, she asked, with kind of a jaundiced eye in my direction. Well, it did. And this week I asked her the question, so how's Windows 8 working for you? It's no big deal, she said. One click and I'm at the desktop. If only the rest of the world could be so smart. There are days when I wish that Microsoft had somebody like Steve Jobs on board. Jobs wasn't afraid to make bold decisions and then stick with them. Microsoft, on the other hand, seems to have mastered the technique of making those bold decisions that are then followed up by 
meek exclamations of, Oh, we were just funnin' ya. We didn't really mean it. Here's your start button again. Grow a couple of apples, Balmer. So you should expect to look for more news about Windows 8 in the next few weeks, probably, actually, before the end of May. Microsoft's Vice President, Julie Larson-Green, was recently quoted as almost admitting the Start button is coming back. The Start menu is not the be-all and end-all, she said, but a button might be useful for some people to have on the screen. Looking forward instead of backward, Windows 8.1 will probably improve the Start screen. Currently, tiles come in two sizes, stupidly enormous and gigantic, so various additional options as far as sizes go would certainly be helpful. The name will remain the same, Windows 8, and apparently Microsoft has dropped the Service Pack nomenclature. Now the operating system will just receive a minor version number, the point one. Some might accuse the company of copying Apple's continued use of OS X with the addition of minor version numbers, 10.6, 10.7, 10.8, for example. But Apple gives its operating systems cute kitty names like Lion and Panther, Tiger, Snow Leopard, and Mountain Lion. Maybe Microsoft could pick some cute names, too. Apparently, Microsoft will also improve the integration, which is already pretty good, with SkyDrive. In addition to returning the unneeded Start button, if it does, Windows 8.1 reportedly will offer the option to boot directly to the desktop bypassing the start screen. As an option, this makes sense for those who work on non-touch-enabled devices and is something that Microsoft probably should have included with the initial release of Windows 8. As with other software providers, such as Adobe, which I'll cover in just a moment, and Apple, it appears that Microsoft is moving to a release schedule that includes more frequent updates that offer fewer or smaller improvements instead of extending the development cycle and creating blockbuster releases. And speaking of Adobe, which I just was, there will be no more boxes of Adobe software. Gobsmacked. I expected Adobe would transition from packaged software to Software as a Service, or SAAS, sometime. But this week's Adobe Max conference in Los Angeles made it clear that the time is not in the future, but now. Creative Suite is being replaced by Creative Cloud. That's the year-old online service that Adobe announced as part of Creative Suite 6. Adobe's acquisition of Behance, the online service for designers, photographers, videographers, and other creatives, will change the way people use Adobe's applications. Adobe's general manager of digital media, David Wapwami, told the crowd in Los Angeles about the company's increased emphasis on connectivity. Most of you spend hours every day creating things in our applications. But these apps do so little to help you find, stay connected to the things that generate your ideas or improve your finished work. Creativity thrives when it's part of a broader conversation. But creation is still too often done in isolation. And mobile devices are completely changing how, what, and where we create. But they aren't effectively tied into the creative process. These are problems we can solve 
And that's what drives the vision that we have for Creative Cloud. When we launched Creative Cloud a year ago, it was largely an efficient way to buy and download our CS apps. But our vision for it has always been much bigger. So like in the past, we're going to show you some amazing innovation in our creative applications. We've added hundreds of new features across every major product. But unlike in the past, we've connected these apps to an integrated creative process that we believe will elevate everyone's work. So when you save your work in our applications, your creative files and folders are now automatically synchronized to the cloud and accessible across all of your devices. And because they're in the cloud, you can share the folders with your peers. These group folders are then automatically synchronized across their laptops and their devices. But in today's world, why limit yourself to collaborating with people you know? Why not benefit from the millions of creatives worldwide? So we connect your tools and files to Behance as well, and a thriving network with millions of creatives. Now, as you perfect your work, we let you aggregate it into finished projects in an online portfolio so others in the community can see and appreciate your work, and you can build your reputation and your network of creatives. And finally, we streamline the effort required to actually publish all of this work, either as a personal website or as an app deployed through the App Store. And we tie it all together in a single integrated experience across all of your devices. So you always know what's happening with your work, and you always know what's happening in your creative network. All of this makes up the creative cloud. Your creative applications, your assets and settings, collaboration, your community, your online portfolio, your finished work, all of it makes up the creative cloud. In short, we're putting you and your content at the center of a creative process by connecting you to the people that matter most every step of the way. Hundreds of new features will be included with the new Creative Cloud offering, and I wonder if applications will continue to be given numbers. After all, Creative Cloud subscribers will automatically receive new features as Adobe develops them and releases them, but only if they want to. Last week, I described the Adobe Lightroom 5 public beta, but noted that instead of the usual 6 to 12 month beta period, it appears that Lightroom beta will be just a month or so. Adobe had already shifted to a faster release schedule, and Creative Cloud simply make faster updates easier. We've already seen automatic updates with the Adobe Application Manager, so Creative Cloud changes little in that regard. There are far too many new features to describe all of them here, but a few did catch my attention. For example, Adobe Camera Raw is now a filter. The implications of this change are huge. In Photoshop, raw files must be opened initially in Camera Raw, modified, and then opened in Photoshop. The user who wants to create additional Camera Raw modifications must close the file in Photoshop and open it once again via Camera Raw. And in the process, you lose all of the changes that you've made in Photoshop. Camera Raw is an integral part of Lightroom, meaning that it's always possible to make modifications. In Photoshop, Camera Raw operates as a plugin, and Adobe's decision to treat it as a filter or plugin will make the functions much more accessible. I'm really impressed by the shake reduction filter that fixes camera blur. 
When you use a slow shutter setting, your image might be blurred, not because it's out of focus, but because the camera moved just a little bit during the exposure. Until now, there was no way to fix an image that suffered motion blur. But Photoshop Creative Cloud's Shake Reduction Filter joins capabilities such as Content-Aware Patch in providing what's essentially magical corrections. I haven't yet been able to try this functionality myself, but the demos I've seen are truly remarkable. There's Illustrator's Touch Type Edition. It allows modifications to individual characters, and as amazing as this feature is, it's disappointing because most of its capabilities were present in Corel Draw back in the mid-1990s. So it's now possible to grab a character in a line of text and move it above or below the baseline, or change its size or color, or move it left and right. Those of us who used applications such as CorelDRAW and Ventura Publisher sometimes wonder why Adobe has taken so long to duplicate the features that were in these applications 20 years ago. But let's let that go. Easier animation for web designers. Edge Animate CC, or Creative Cloud, makes it possible for web designers to create animated content with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. You'll notice that I did not mention Flash. This works around Apple's prohibition against Flash on iOS-powered devices. For those who need to support multiple platforms, from desktop computers with big screens all the way down to phones with screens the size of an index card, Edge Reflow CC is going to be helpful. Now, admittedly, this is kind of a long segment. At the beginning of the week, I had expected to cover Adobe's announcement in short circuits, but after I posted some preliminary information about the new Creative Cloud offering and people had a chance to read what I'd written and read what certain other outlets had written about Adobe's plans, there seemed to be an open invitation to let the panic begin. This is a return to the bad old days of centralized computing, some of the folks opined. Oh, I can't use Photoshop through my browser, others muttered. And, of course, there was the, oh, my files won't be safe if I have to store them in the cloud. Okay, instead of feeding the panic, I'd like to bring a little bit of call and understanding to this subject. In short, this is not a return to centralized computing. The applications will continue to run on your local machine, not from the cloud. And if you don't want to store your files in the cloud, that's fine. Don't store them in the cloud. Everything will work pretty much the same as it did, except, in my opinion, better. The primary advantages the new arrangement brings are immediate updates when the new features are released via the Adobe Application Manager, but only if you want them. The ability to create saved preferences that will be made available to all of your computers and can be shared with others. The ability to use Behance, which is now owned by Adobe, to promote your work and to work collaboratively with others. And the ability to use a single license to install Adobe applications on both PCs and Macs. In the past, if you had a PC at the office and a Mac at home, or the other way around, you had to buy 
two licenses. No more. Adobe, in fact, has gone to great lengths to destroy some of the more prevalent myths, but they continue nonetheless. Here are five of them. Myth number one. I'll have to run my application in a browser. Well, that may be the case with other cloud-based offerings, but it's not the case with Creative Cloud. Creative Cloud members download and install apps, as Adobe customers always have. The apps like Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, and even the new Muse app run from your hard drive, not the cloud. Myth number two. I have to constantly be connected to the internet to use my Adobe applications. Well, not exactly. Your apps not only install on your hard drive, but they run offline. Your computer does have to connect to the internet once a month, if you have a monthly membership, just to make sure your membership is still current. Or if you have a yearly membership, it has to connect every 180 days. Is that difficult? Oh no, I can't share files with friends that aren't subscribed to the cloud. Sorry, but you can share your files with friends who are not subscribed to Creative Cloud. Once you decide to share a file, you can email a link to colleagues or clients, and they'll be able to view your file in their web browser, even if they've never heard the term Creative Cloud. Even if they don't know anything about Adobe, or have the applications that you used to create your images. Oh no! I lose access to my files in the Creative Cloud if I ever unsubscribe. Well, you won't have access to your Creative Cloud applications anymore, but you will be able to open your files in any previous version of the software that you have on your computer, provided you saved your files to compatible formats that work with your older application or third-party applications. But, you know, that's kind of up to you to be smart enough to do that. If you decide to rejoin Creative Cloud, you'll have access to the latest Creative Cloud apps, and you'll be able to continue working on your files. Oh, well, I'm going to be forced to always run the latest version of the software. No, not exactly. You are not forced to upgrade. You are allowed to upgrade whenever a new version is provided. You can upgrade right away, or you can wait. You can continue to run whichever version of the software you want until you're ready for an upgrade. I mean, after all, this is crucial for workflows that involve working with clients or vendors that may not have the latest versions of the software. So you can continue using whatever version you have of the product for a year after the subsequent version is released. Oh, and by the way, a bonus myth? I'm going to have to buy two separate subscriptions because I have a Windows computer and an Apple's computer. Well, no, sorry, not true. And in fact, it's one of the better benefits of Creative Cloud. With Creative Cloud, you're allowed to install the software on two computers, just as you've been able to do before. But in this case, and for the first time with Creative Cloud, you're able to install the applications on a Mac and a PC with the same license. The myths and the responses were provided by Adobe's Terry White, and you'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to the 10 most common myths 
That's from ProDesign Tools. And yes, this is a big change, but Creative Suite 6, that's the old version now, it'll continue to be sold and supported for a while, just not developed beyond where it is right now. The Creative Cloud applications will be available in June. Individual memberships are $50 per month, and those who own Creative Suite 3, Creative Suite 4, Creative Suite 5 or Creative Suite 5.5 can sign up for $30 a month. That's also the rate for students and teachers. Creative Suite 6 users qualify for a special rate of $20 a month for a one-year subscription. And if you're unsure about Creative Cloud and decide you don't like it after a year, well, you can just drop it and go back to CS6. Or license the Creative Cloud version for six months, or even one month, just to try it out. In fact, if you want to try Creative Cloud for a month, you can download and install the full versions of every application, and they'll run without restriction for 30 days. Oh, I'm going to have to pay 50 bucks a month! That's another refrain I've heard frequently. If you work that out over the 12 to 18 month production cycles that Adobe runs on, you'll find that the cost is probably a bit lower than buying new versions whenever there's a new release. And those who qualify for a reduced price for Creative Suite now, that would be primarily teachers and students, you're still going to qualify for a reduced price under Creative Cloud. One might wish that Adobe had a slightly different pricing schedule. Users can sign up for just Photoshop, or just InDesign, or just Illustrator. But once you've signed up for two applications, you're within easy striking distance of the price of the full suite. One might suspect that Adobe has done this intentionally, because providing access to every application in the suite will undoubtedly lead people to try out applications that they haven't used before. And, you know... You know what happens when creatives get to try something they haven't tried before. It usually involves a certain amount of gnashing of teeth and grumbling, followed by a heck of a lot of happiness. Those who are unable to justify $600 per year for what is arguably the world's most useful software for people who create images, photographs, print design, audio, or video and who may need the applications only a few times a year, licensing Creative Cloud on a per-month basis makes sense. Adobe also offers team memberships that include more online storage and administrative functions at $70 per user per month. The leader, though, is still Photoshop. All of the applications have been upgraded and improved for the Creative Cloud release, but Photoshop is the application that I've singled out for this report. And that's because Photoshop is the one application that's used by amateur photographers and professional photographers, as well as those who create illustrations, often in conjunction with Illustrator, and by those who create videos. In other words, Photoshop has been central to Adobe, and that's clearly going to continue. And the new features there abound. One of the most astonishing features is that deblurring tool that I mentioned. It can improve an image that exhibits motion blur caused by the camera moving during the exposure. Now, its formal name is the Camera Shake Reduction Tool. And it starts by analyzing how the blur occurred and then corrects it. 
You'll never make a perfect image from a blurred image, but the result can rescue an image that's unusable and make it acceptable. There's also the related Smart Sharpen that makes images more crisp while avoiding the telltale signs of over-sharpening, specifically the white halo that's often the result if you do that. And there's the fact that Adobe Camera Raw can now be used as a filter. This makes it much more useful than before. Instead of having to close an existing image to reopen the raw image in Camera Raw, if you decide that additional processing at that stage would be wise, well, now you can just run the Camera Raw filter. And Camera Raw brings the new Upright tool, first seen in Lightroom, along with Lightroom's Radial Gradient, which allows the addition of multiple vignettes throughout an image, and the Advanced Healing Brush, which takes the concept of content-aware to the next level. Photoshop CC even eliminates the concept of a separate 3D version of Photoshop. All of the features are simply included by default. The application has been able to create rounded rectangles for several versions, but designers are going to be happy to find out that they can now adjust the radius of a corner at any time. Instead of having to repeatedly create a rounded corner rectangle until you get it right, create the rectangle and then modify the corners. Existing Creative Cloud users have already seen Photoshop CS6 updates that include the blur gallery effects, liquify effects, and conditional actions converted so that they'll work as smart objects. Now, the rest of the user community will see these same improvements in Creative Cloud. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll find a video with Terry White, who's one of Adobe's Photoshop gurus. In his 10-minute video, he'll share what he considers to be the top five new features on Photoshop, and he'll explain why. The Creative Cloud Suite contains so many features that there's no possible way to describe all of them, or even half of them. So let's just quickly touch on a couple of other components. Dreamweaver expert Paul Tranny describes some of the features that will appeal to website designers. Today's challenges of designing for multiple screens can be difficult. That's where Dreamweaver's enhanced fluid grid layout comes in. This allows you to visually control page layout for multiple screen sizes. The biggest update is the new CSS Designer panel. This lets you visually edit and add CSS properties to items you've selected. When working with type, you can go beyond using system fonts since Dreamweaver includes Adobe Edge web fonts. This allows you to access hundreds of web fonts and apply them directly to your site. Using the updated jQuery mobile tools and PhoneGap build service, you can easily create, package, and publish your mobile apps for multiple platforms and install them directly on your device. The addition of web fonts, another company that Adobe acquired recently, will be a big help to those who design websites. Even better, some of the typefaces will work with Illustrator and InDesign, too. Before the launch of Creative Suite 6, I asked one of the Adobe product managers about the ability to use these faces for non-web applications. The rather gruff response at that time suggested that web fonts would never be used anywhere but on a website. Well, that seems to have changed. 
And Illustrator's Rufus Deutschler talks about the new TouchType tool. When you need to craft a type-driven layout for a project, like the design for a headline or a poster, the TouchType tool lets you work with letters as individual objects, but still edit the font or words as if working with live text. Just select a line of text, then by clicking on a letter, you can then scale, rotate, and move letters individually. The text size, tracking, kerning, and other controls can still be used from the character panel, giving you the exact control you expect from a text feature. I haven't yet had the opportunity to work with this version of Illustrator. Maybe this will be the version in which the developers get the extrude and bevel functions right. With each new version, I hope for some improvements in this seriously broken feature. Apparently, this isn't a feature that real designers need or want. So, consider the surface of Adobe Creative Cloud scratched, but just barely. There's clearly a lot to like, and probably a few things to loathe. You'll hear more about both of those in upcoming programs. In short circuits, Sony reports a profit, and yes, that is news. It's news because it's the first time Sony has managed to do it in half a decade. The yen is weak against the dollar, and Sony has cut costs enough that it was able to report a profit of $435 million on sales of $68 billion. Sony projects increased sales and better profits for the rest of the year, The company ended its flat panel television venture with Sharp and Samsung, sold office buildings, and divested itself of a chemical company. But the dropping value of the yen created export opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have existed. Sales have been off for the PlayStation division, the TV division lost money for the eighth year in a row, and even digital cameras, which had been a profit center, stumbled because of declining interest in compact digital cameras. Sony is active in what's called the four-thirds marketplace, though, selling digital cameras that have small sensors but also have interchangeable lenses, and that section of the business has been improving. Sony Films, they reported pretty good earnings based on popular films such as the latest James Bond movie and a Spider-Man film. This is good news. We have a spammer in the slammer. Sven Olaf Kampius, native of the Netherlands, has been returned there from Spain as authorities continue to investigate a large distributed denial of service attack against the anti-spam operation Spam House. Investigators can hold Kampius for up to three months as the investigation continues. But for now, a judge in Rotterdam has ordered him to remain in jail for two weeks on suspicion of being a participant in the attack that slowed the entire internet for several days in April. Europe was particularly hard hit by the attack, even though it was aimed specifically at Spam House. 
The attack appeared to be in retaliation for actions by Spam House in March when it added two operations that Campius runs to its blacklist. Those operations are called Cyberbunker, allegedly a spamming operation, and an internet service provider called CB3ROB. Campius has railed against Spam House on Facebook, but he says he was not involved in the attacks. He's not yet been charged. The Senate has proposed placing a spy watch on suspect nations. Four senators, two Republicans, two Democrats, have sponsored a bill that calls for additional protections against online spying by foreign governments. Democrats Carl Levin of Michigan and Jay Rockefeller of West Virginia, joined with Republicans Tom Coburn of Oklahoma and John McCain of Arizona, to sponsor what's called the Deter Cyber Theft Act. It's a bill that has no catchy acronym but would create what it terms a watch list of nations. Earlier in the week, a Defense Department report specifically identified a division of the Chinese military as an organization that uses online spying against the United States. The Chinese government termed the charges irresponsible and harmful. Overall, it looks like a discussion between the pot that has launched its own cyber attacks in conjunction with Israel against Iran and the kettle that continues to launch clearly identified attempts to break into Defense Department computers. Besides creating the watch list, the Deter Cyber Theft Act would call on the National Director of Intelligence to create an accounting of the U.S. technologies that have been targeted and to list information that's been stolen through online snooping. The bill then asks for a certain amount of speculation about what products or weapons the information might have been used to build, and it wants a list of foreign companies that benefited from information theft. A report in February provided clear evidence that Chinese military units are involved in online espionage, and this week the Defense Department dropped the other shoe with its report. According to a data breach investigations report authored by Verizon, nearly all online snooping investigated in 2012 led back to China. Nearly all? Uh, that would be The company has signed a licensing deal with Electronic Arts to develop games based on the Star Wars movies for PCs, game consoles, and mobile devices. Now, wait a minute. Where's George Lucas? Disney did the deal because, as of October, Disney owns Lucasfilm, George Lucas's company that develops movies. The price was a little over $4 billion. Disney is holding on to the right to develop online and mobile games. Electronic Arts has some experience in the arena, having released Star Wars The Old Republic in 2011. They released that as a massive multiplayer online game, or MMO. Thousands of people can play the game at the same time, and it carries a monthly subscription fee. 
In creating the online game, Electronic Arts hired hundreds of voice talent actors, but the game hasn't aged very well, and participation has been dropping despite the game's 15 levels. Late last year, Electronic Arts even released a free version of the game. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.